Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the BSSH Sport and History Podcast. I'm Connor Heffernan, and I'm very happy uh, to be joined today by Julian Clenon. Julian is a PhD researcher at University College Dublin who's doing some really interesting work on sport in Ireland, pardon me, specifically sport in Dublin. So I will open by giving the floor over to Julian, who can maybe do a much better job of explaining his research uh, than I can. So hi, Kunal. Yeah, so um, I'm currently undertaking a PhD thesis in sport history in uh, University College Dublin. And I deal with sport in Dublin in the 19th century. So really the reason why I chose this topic is uh, quite simple. Um, I had a lifelong interest in sports. And when I moved in Dublin, I developed an interest uh, in the city and its history. Uh, then I read Tom Hunt's History of Sport in Westmeath. I thought it was a super piece of research and, and I decided to do something similar for Dublin. So basically my research look at the transformation of the sporting scene from traditional pastimes to modern sports. And the second part of the 19th century was the moment it took place in Dublin. Um, the pattern of codification, commercialization, democratization um, is quite well known really. And my thesis does not break um, new ground in that respect, really. But it fills a gap. Um, you have currently great academic works on Irish sport in the 19th and uh, early 20th century. But I cannot really recall any in a urban context. Um, Tom Hunt, Pat Brackett, Pat Bracken, sorry, mm -hmm. and Conor Curran have analyzed sport in their own counties of Westmeath, Tipperary, and Donegal. And we do have specific sports studies in the local context. Um, Richard McElligott looked at the GA in Kerry, uh, Liam O'Callaghan and Dave Toms did so for rugby and soccer in Munster. But there is no, no, no real uh, comprehens comprehensive academic study of the development of 19th century sport in a urban context in Ireland. Belfast, for example, was the only Irish city which experienced a large scale uh, industrialization and yet it's been largely ignored, except maybe by Neil Garnham's work on, uh, on soccer in uh, Northern Ireland. And, and likewise, there's not much done on Dublin, the capital. So I believe there is a story to be told, and that's what I'm doing right now with that thesis. Brilliant. And I think, just to reiterate, like I say, there's been wonderful regional works in Tipperary, Cork, and Kerry, and Munster, but it's so interesting that Dublin, the capital, has just been not, not necessarily ignored, but it hasn't re received that like in-depth historical context. Yeah, absolutely. I would expect uh, I would have expected much more uh, a body of work on it, uh, especially coming from France, where Paris it's everything in France. To see the same thing in in Ireland, especially when you see the size of Dublin faced with the rest of the country, and even in 20th century historiography, I don't think Dublin is so present as the rest of the country. Hmm. Yeah, it seems to be an assumption of its importance ra rather than a, a study of it. Uh, yeah, okay, that's what I, that was my point of view at the start. And I say, oh, Dublin must be important. Let's see. Maybe it's not. Maybe it was. But I got hooked on it and I decided <laughs> to keep going with uh, studying Dublin, which which I kind of really enjoy to do. So what, what basically my, my work is really, uh, you have three, three main aspects into my thesis. The first one, it's to precisely map out the pace and extent of changes. 
So when did the first sport club appear? Who did they appeal to? So we saw the first sport club um, developed in the 18th century, but really we see a bubbling in club creation in Dublin in the 1830s in cricket, rowing, chess, hunting, etc. This was essentially uh, a gentry and upper class um, clubs. Then from the late 1850s, a sport club began to be created by the middle classes. We saw rowing and cricket at the spread downwards, and athletic also began to be organized around clubs. We see in the late 1850s, civil servants, policemen, journalists, lawyers, doctors, and the employees of train companies or department stores beginning to create their own sport club. That was not happening before the late 1850s. And then finally, we saw um, from the late 1870s, uh, the working class started to organize their own sport club. Uh, the GA is obviously in here extremely symbolic, but we also saw that cricket, soccer, boxing, and cycling uh, had a large following within the city's working class. And what happened to traditional pastime? When that world of modern sport was built, did it simply disappear? like uh, bull baiting, for example, uh, did they modernize, like hurling, or did they survive in the margin illegally? And that was a case of cockfighting or dogfighting. I tried to take account of that as well, to see the scale of changes and what did not change. Um, the second strand in my thesis would be, and again, it's a bit commonplace, is to link um, sports to Dublin society. Uh, what does sport tell us about Dublin as a city? How did the class and religious divide play out in sports? And how sport came to illustrate the divisions in the city? So we know that uh, sport was not only about going out with friends, it was also a, a status of wealth or a social status, such as in golf or hunting. But we also see how um, living condition framed sporting tradition in the city. For example, within the working class, we have in the 1880s and 1890s, we saw that the rural migrants coming from Leinster or Munster were essentially working as barmen or shop assistants. For them, the Saturday was then still a full day of work. So they could not play rugby or soccer, which were played on Saturdays. But what they did, they started to play um, Gaelic football and hurling on Sundays. And that also fitted the rural ethos of the GA. Conversely, we can see that uh, city boys born and bred in Dublin essentially took jobs in the industries or services or in the lower level of administration. And by the 1890s, most of them have secured a Saturday half holiday so they could play soccer and they didn't show much of interest into the GA. So we see here in the broad spectrum of the working class how different social conditions led to different sporting cultures. And that remains so for decades afterwards in Dublin. And finally, the last trend in my study, that's what I try to take account of, is uh, to analyze what sport meant for people. Why did they play? Now the answer is essentially because they liked it. Yes, that's pure and simple. You play because you, because you have fun in it. So despite all the transformation um, in the way we understood sport 
sport. In the way the city evolved, there was at the core that notion of pleasure, of fun that was always present. But there was also um, an element of fashion that was extremely important. Uh, people played because their neighbor played as well. So you didn't want to look stupid, you did what you did. Uh, the wish to look good in the community was also strong in explaining um, sport participation. And uh, I have a kind of anecdote that kind of uh, sums up a little bit uh, in a nutshell what I want to say in here. And uh, probably Connor, you know about it. It deals with uh, the short fashion uh, for physical education in the 1820s and 1830s in Dublin. So as you know, um, there were at the time two French-speaking um, gymnastic instructors, uh, Louis Huguenin and uh, Monsieur Beaujeu, who established their business in the city. And they run gymnastic classes. And if you want, they try to raise awareness on the development of the body and its connection to the physical and mental health. Now, in, in 1836, Louis Huguenin, one of the teachers, Swiss-born, uh, made a lecture at the Rotunda which was a large conference room in Dublin. It was in front of a packed and fashionable audience, if you believe uh, newspapers. And the lecture was on the development of the mental and physical powers of man. Now, what I'm trying to do in my thesis is to, in a nutshell, to see if people went to that lecture because they had a genuine interest in the matter, if they went because their neighbor and friends went and they didn't want to look stupid, or if they just wanted to look serious by listening to someone speaking gymnastic with a French accent. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to do. And, and saying it in a French accent immediately, you know, is... The, the element of exoticism uh, cannot be underestimated when you uh, deal with sport in 19th century. Yeah. The reason why um, uh, roller skating had such an element of uh, such a high popularity in 75 in Dublin was because it was new, it was exotic, it was fashionable. It's, yeah, and I mean, a, a lot of us still get sucked into these things in 2021. So, I mean, it, it oh, makes yeah. sense that these. Absolutely. That was just new and exciting. So, okay, let's go have a look. Yeah, everyone's doing it. Like electric scooters in Dublin at the moment um, <laughs> with an interesting development. So, I suppose as a dissertation that's covering a, a century, but B, so many different sports and the interaction between sport and society, as a very basic question, where are you getting information on this? Because you seem to be looking at it from so many different angles. Um, no, look, it's newspaper, uh, essentially. Hmm. The bulk of the research is newspapers. Uh, they, give, they give name of the clubs, of the players, um, I also had access to the Trinity College archives, which are really good because um, some sports in Dublin have been developed by students of Dublin University. Like I think of uh, rowing, cricket, athletics, and especially rugby. Rugby was introduced in Ireland by students of Trinity College. And they have a great archive in Trinity College. I had access to it and uh, I used it a lot. Uh, some smaller archives, well, the Tough Club archive is also quite good for horse racing. Uh, I had schools archives, which are also good, kind of Alexandra College, King's Hospital, High School. Mm. Um, a couple of clubs archives, such as uh, Clontar Football Club for rugby. And um, 
also the census report in 1901 was great to make, um, if you want, a social study of players at the turn of the 20th century. By matching names from the newspaper, you track them back to the 1901 census, and you can, if you want, create a, an ideal type of your average rugby player, etc. That's what Tom Hunt did in Westmeath very well, I think, and I try to, to do it as well in here. Yeah. And when you're dealing with the class, um, I suppose, connotations of sport, how early on do you see distinctions between, say, middle and upper and working class sport within Dublin? Um, well, I believe sport was always separated on class line, even in 18th century. Hmm. There was, I don't think there was a, a social mixity. And then, obviously, in the 19th century, the growth of the middle class in Dublin from the 1830s onwards, and especially in the second part of the century, um, if you want to refine the, the social hierarchization and created differences between sports, which was actually quite clear by 1900, you, you do have club belong to the really to the elites, then for the upper middle classes, lower middle classes, and even within the working class, you see soccer was more for the if you want for the labor aristocracy, and the GA in the city and more um, shop assistant or unskilled worker in the country. Mm. And I, I suppose tying into that, and something we've talked about, like in one of the many meetings where we. Uh, complain about sport history um how what role does geography play in this as well because i know you've done some really interesting work on geographical clusters in dublin and in certain sports well also what i try to do sometimes is to see um yeah where where were club located and where were players living hmm. and basically this helps you to um to link sport into the society for example um you could see the pattern of recruitment. How did it work? Was it about a workplace or about neighborhood? Um, you see, for example, in the case of uh, the Clontarf Football Club, most people lived in Clontarf. Most of them lived in the same street, so you could expect the recruitment to be done by friendship and neighbor, uh, neighboring ties. But in the Bechtif Football Club, for example, you see a pattern of recruitment that was true throughout the city. So it was much looser connection. So maybe it was connection from schools, from work, less anchored in the neighborhood. Mm. Um, I'll try to do that as well. Um, it's also important to see, the, to see that in the context of um, suburbanization. You see, for example, in the 1850s and 60s, uh, cricket mainly developed into the suburbs, which was... Uh, matching the development of the middle class, of this middle class area at the time, and how they took on cricket as a way of life or as a way of enjoying time. And I suppose just related to anything about suburbanization, how, how much are they benefiting from playing fields and sporting areas from say the 1700s and how much of the city is now being rebuilt to have cricket fields or GA pitches or soccer pitches. I'm sort of wondering how, how many new fields and playing areas are built in the 19th century and how many are kind of repurposing older pitches. Is that something that you're able to figure out? Uh, and do? Partly, well, I've been partly able to, to see uh, the amount of uh, sporting infrastructure built in the 19th century. Mm. 
dedicated here. So, okay, seen over a hundred year time, it's it's just staggering the, the, the development. Like in 1900, there were pretty much no uh, dedicated sporting infrastructure built in the city. Uh, swimming pool, bathing places by the coastline, I think was the only one. And then you see how usually by private companies, sometimes public authorities uh, authorized or even built uh, cricket pitches in the Phoenix Park, for example. Mm -hmm. But usually, usually it would be um, residents or uh, private companies building uh, cricket pitches, football pitches um, that we see nowadays. At the turn of the 20th century, I think uh, it was more important that uh, Dublin Corporation was a bit more proactive into the building of sporting facilities. For example, when they, they built a park in, a, in the north inner city, a new kind of fashionable park, mm -hmm. and included two uh, handball walls, two walls to play handballs on it. They also uh, created uh, football and cricket pitches in the Phoenix Park. That was not common before the 1890s. And yeah, that's kind of it. Yeah, as a, um, a very bad cricket player, I got to benefit from one of the cricket pitches in the Phoenix Park ever so briefly uh, before they told me to stop playing. So the, the issue of fashion is something that I think is quite interesting. And obviously the fashions in place will evolve across the 19th century. Do you get a sense of when sports like soccer, rugby and the GA start to become, say, more, the more predominant sports? Because obviously in the 20th century, they kind of separate from the rest of the pastimes in Dublin. Like in the 19th century, are there other sports that are quite fashionable? You know, maybe to the same extent oh, yeah. these sports would become. Okay, okay. Cr cricket, uh, cricket was the most fashionable sport in the 1850s, 60s, 70s. Uh, cr cricket was big, really big. It was played by uh, most of uh, the population, well, most of the male population, by all all sort of classes. It was very informal as well. Cricket was not, uh, you, you did have cricket clubs created, but you could uh, just meet up with friends and play cricket games if you want. Cricket was also played in the streets. So uh, by kids, I mean, like it was uh, not, maybe not happening often, but we do have a court record of um, judges kind of finding parents because their kids were playing cricket in the streets and they were breaking windows, etc. That, that was my so, first thought when uh, I cricket in the streets. I was yeah. like, the windows are just kind of... <laughs> so so there, was, there was cricket played at popular level. Then we had... Um, there were, if you want, rush of uh, fashions that happened, like uh, roller skating was such a, such a rush. Tennis was really big as well in the upper middle classes in the 1880s. Tennis was a rage. Hmm. Um, what, what, what else? You had a rush as well in um, horse racing in Dublin in the 1890s. Pony racing, Sunday racing. That was made for the working class to go out on a Sunday and to bet some money on it. So hmm. that was properly organized um, horse racing meeting, but not on the level um, of meeting held by the turf club, if you want. Not like what you had in Baldoyle or Lopaston, that was much smaller in the Phoenix Park. And uh, this was really big. For example, such meeting in the late 1890s, you could have 50 of them here in the city, in the Phoenix Park, at Rathfarnham, 
pretty much every Saturday, every Sunday, every Saturday or Sunday, there was a meeting with that. Yeah. Cheap. It was cheap to get in. You go in, you watch races, you bet some money, you go out. They were taking place on Sunday around late morning, lunchtime. So you still had your afternoon off if you wanted to. So we do, we do, we do see many, many sports uh, rose to fame and then suddenly just ebbed away by for whatever reason, because lack of interest, something else came up, etc. And you've mentioned betting a few times, and I think it's something that, you know, is, is really at the heart of so many Irish sports in the 19th and 20th century. And there hasn't been a huge amount yet on gambling and betting in sport. Is that something that you're able to really dig into in some of uh, these sports, like the kind of pony racing or, you know, cheaper, more accessible racing? In, in Ireland, not really. I know that um, you had three, three academic studies made in England on uh, gambling and betting. Mm. With relation, okay, it's gobbling and betting generally, but the relation with sport is obvious. Uh, I think one is by uh, Carl Chin, another one by Mark Clapson, and the last one by uh, Roger Manting. They're really good, and they give you the, the broad spectrum of what was betting, what was gambling, mm. um, in which context did it happen, and what was the reaction of the law towards this. And basically, they agree that. Even though the authorities were trying to reduce gambling and betting, they just look, it was not much they could do. Huh? People wanted to do so, they did so. And yeah, it was it was a driving force of sport in 19th century. It still is at today, I suppose, as well. Like horse racing is made for betting. Um, most contests would have some money associated with them, like prize fighting, cricket matches up to the 18th. 30s were also made for money, usually. Mm. Even by the aristocracy, the aristocracy were amongst uh, the most important uh, gamblers at the time. So, so it has a long history. Is oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, you mentioned the 1830s. Actually, something that I'd probably be hitting my head off the wall later if I didn't men mention is um, a study of sport during the famine, because I know. James Kelly has a wonderful book that stops kind of 1840. Um, Brian Griffin has an article from two or three years ago, maybe, in Irish Economic and Social History on Sport During the Famine. Is there a downturn in sport in Dublin during the famine, or is that something that it's, it kind of continues on regardless? No, it went on. It went on. Um, it's difficult to, uh, to assess the impact of the famine in Dublin. I, I didn't really find so much on it. Sports-wise, uh, it's almost as if it was irrelevant. But that might be because my my data is distorted because a newspaper would um, obviously emphasize uh, middle-class or upper-class sports. And it was unlikely this were the people affected by the famine. Mm. So as a matter of fact, I saw horse racing went on as usual. Hunting went on as usual. Uh, cricket matches took place. No, how, how, where? Folk pastime affected uh, this, I don't really know. I, I didn't find enough evidence to, to say if it was a decline or not during the famine years. Yeah, and that's really, I know it affects all countries equally, but the importance of folk sports in Irish uh, sport history, and it's, it's very difficult to actually dig in and figure out. Yeah, you, f um, you find a lot of um, evidence of it, anecdotes in a uh, folklore collection you know it you know it's there mm. but it's very difficult to quantify it's difficult to to make trends over a century 
Yeah. You know, you know, it's 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 at all time it was there. They were informal races. Um, I was telling you there was some stone throwing uh, in the countryside around Dublin. There was a tap dancing in the competitive setting. That was very informal. We know it was there up to the early 20th century, wrestling matches as well. Mm. But we do not know to which extent it was played and what was the trend. Was it in decline? Was it in prospering or not? This is difficult to, uh, to assess. Yeah. So something that has kind of struck me, and I suppose it ties back into your fashionable uh, French-speaking gymnastic uh, anecdote, is how international was sport in Dublin in the 19th century? Because I know Bougeau, for example, and by international even, I mean, you know, between Ireland and, and Britain, because I know Bougeau, the gymnastic instructor from the 1820s, he divides his time between Dublin and Liverpool for a little while. So I'm wondering how insular is it or how international is it? Uh, no, there was a level of internationalism, mm. uh, especially from the 1850s onwards. We saw cricket team from England coming regularly. I think in the 60s, there was a, a cricket professional organized again between all Ireland and an, an English professional team in cricket. But it's really from the 1870s onwards that we saw um, the internationalization of uh, sport in Dublin. And I'm talking uh, worldwide. In the 1870s, you had uh, Polo came in Dublin. So the rules of Polo, who was a game from Indian origin, but kind of created with in Britain, if you want. Um, Polo came in Dublin in Dublin in 1874, I think. Uh, roller skating as well. We had from the USA, we had uh, trotting, baseball, lacrosse came in the city in, in the 1870s. Some were here to stay, lacrosse, was still was played afterwards in Belfast for a while. Didn't didn't pick up in Dublin. Uh, trotting didn't work out. Walking came. Uh, there was a fashion of walking in the USA that came back to Britain in the seventies. That took hold in Dublin. Um, you do have uh, another example. Very simple is the creation of the um, if you want the modern day uh, bicycle was made in France in the sixties and by. I think the late 1860s in Dublin, you had a, uh, a bicycle club as well. And then what was, uh, if you want, uh, there was also a rifle shooting. There was international rifle shooting match between Ireland and the USA in the 70s. And that was, that was big by any standard of the time. That was hugely popular. Mm. Um, in rifle shooting was very much a minority sport, right? You're talking maybe 100 contestants at most in Dublin. But in the 70s, uh, they had a good generation that was able to win um, competition against uh, English and Scottish team. And uh, they decided to challenge the USA in long distance rifle shooting. Now that was really, really a minority sport. You do not have many people who shot with a rifle at 800 yards or 900 yards or 1000 yards. But yet they challenged the USA. They went in uh, 74, they went in New York Great, all rounds they lost. 75, the USA came back in Ireland, and that was madness. Mm. Um, that was in uh, Dolimont uh, Strand on the North Bull. And on that day, there was between 20 and 50,000 people to watch people shooting with a rifle. That was mad. The week before was the Irish Championship with only a couple of hundred people. Mm. When the American came in town, you're talking 20,000 people at least. 
on the beach towards them shooting. It was pure madness. That was a level um, that was unseen previously in Irish sport. You did have such a level of enthusiasm, sometimes for uh, prize fights or for horse racing, but this were deeply ingrained pastime in Ireland. These were popular pastimes and they were free. But on that day, on the, on the uh, on Donimut Strand, people had to pay to go to watch people shooting with a rifle. And they did so in thousands. And was that there was like a huge news, newspaper push about this excitement or? It was huge. It was a building in the newspaper for a month before. Yeah. It okay. was, this was, if you want, uh, the, the rifle shooting match at Dolimont Strand in 75 between uh, Ireland and the USA was the culmination of the codification of the sport. The organization, if you want, at the beginning of international bodies mm -hmm. like Ireland challenged the USA in a clearly defined um, rifle shooting competition. Ireland was considered the champion of Europe because they beat England and Scotland. So they wanted to go for championship of the world unofficially. Um, the press saw they could make a lot of money on it. So they built up the match like nothing before in Irish sport history. Uh, 10 minutes after the result, 10 minutes after the last shot was fired, the Freeman Journal was having a special edition in the street. <laughs> they wired the score from Donnyman Strand to the city, and they printed a special edition with a score straight away. That's incredible. Oh, absolutely. And then uh, the following year, Ireland went to the USA. They lost again. So that was, I think, three wins in a row for the USA. And then it disappeared. <laughs> Suddenly. There was another match, uh, Ireland-USA, in the early 80s, but never on that level. But yeah. by then, by the, by, by the 1880s, you had... Other sport became international as you had uh, rugby with Scotland and uh, England was a big thing. But, um, oh yeah, that was, that's also part of the fashion and exoticism of sports. You see people that you don't see on any other day. Like how many Irish people met Americans in the 1870s? Not so many. So that was part of the attraction. Yeah, well, only if they emigrated to America. <laughs> then, yeah, then well, they could I, they, I think if they went, they never came back. Um, yes, you don't know anyone like that. So we've talked about kind of internationalization. Something that, again, I probably should ask is the early years of the GA. So GA is founded 1884. Does it have a presence in the research that you're looking at? Because it, it was a slow birth. Uh, yeah, no, it does. It does, but it's not as big as in other countries. Yeah, okay. Uh, for a few reasons. The first reason is that uh, the GA was essentially focused on the countryside more than Dublin. Mm -hmm. There was, if you want, that a kind of uh, denial that Dublin can be the capital of Gaelic games when the monster, monster was supposed to be the heartland of the game. Uh, nevertheless, Dublin was an important uh, administrative center. center. You had uh, uh, meetings taking place there. You also had many games uh, Inter-county games were taking place in Dublin, uh, just for the reason that it was easily accessible, like like train were going to Dublin, so game took place there. But as for the development of the GA in the city, it was essentially made uh, amongst working-class rural migrants. Dubliners, as such, didn't really play, mm -hmm. uh, but people from the country did play. So that was already. Uh, quite mapped out by William Nolan in his book on the GA in Dublin, I think. Um, it is important, but not as important as soccer. 
not as important as cricket. I mean, uh, quantity-wise. After the cultural meaning of the GA was obviously very important in Dublin too, but from the from the pure cheer cheer amount of players, uh, they were more soccer players, they were more athletes, they were more cricketers in Dublin than Gaelic players. That's fascinating. So I suppose as we start to wind down, is there anything that I should have asked um, regarding your research or your, your dissertation? Is there any kind of key development or trend or sport that re really was important that we, we didn't get a chance to talk about? Um, no, I, I think we covered most of it. Um, but there is, there is a thing that I like to insist on, and that's what my supervisor, Paul Rose, also insists on. It's uh, the fun of the sport that was, if you want, constant in any sort of sporting practices in 18th century to early 20th century. You see that as the art of sport, the fun of meeting people, the fun of playing, the fun of watching. Um, this is something that I would like to stress in like this and that I'm working to articulate in a proper academic way. Hmm. I think um, Paul actually has a good article on it in Irish Studies Review. Maybe like, I can't remember, it's a great title. Oh, um, recently, yeah, I think it's, um, I forgot the title, yeah. Something about but, desire uh, in the human heart or... Yeah. That, that, that's really, you're his current student, I'm his former student, and we can't remember the <laughs> um, As a funny anecdote, when Paul was my advisor for physical culture in Ireland, he was again, you know, reminding me that this could be fun. And he asked, you know, well, like, wh why did people do this? And I think he was expecting me to say for the fun or the love of it. And I said to look better naked. And I think after that, Paul probably stopped talking to me for a few months. But, uh, you know, the, the fun and the enjoyment of it um, is a very important part of it. So the, la the last question, probably the trickiest is, and the one you won't like to be asked, uh, when will the research and when will the dissertation uh, be submitted? What's, what's the timeline for you now? Um, I hope to, um, I hope to, Submitted by the end of the year. That's like January 2022 at most, I would expect. Yeah, so you you um you get to be optimistic in 2021, which is a, a brilliant thing. <laughs> and, uh, no, I've not I've no doubt you'll have it submitted. And it, yeah. if this conversation is anything to go by, it'll be absolutely wonderful. So I will end by saying, Julian, again, thank you so much for this. Um, yeah, th thanks, Gunnar. Uh, so people look out for Julian's work look out for Julian's dissertation because it really is going to be an exciting thing. So thanks so much again. Thanks. Thanks. Kyle.